0: Hi, I'm Dr. Robin Koslowitz, clinical psychologist, parenting educator, and post-traumatic parent. Welcome to the Post Traumatic Parenting Podcast, where we learn to provide our children with a healthy childhood, even if ours was anything but. Or maybe we had a wonderful childhood, but recent events in our lives have left us reeling. Let's face it, after 2020, we're all post-traumatic parents now. Welcome. So I just finished the podcast recording I did with Survivor's Path. These are women who survived mass shooting events like Columbine. And we were talking about post-traumatic parenting after a mass shooting event like that. I have to say, I was so conscious within myself of the desire to play trauma poker, even though I know that that's not a healthy Place to go, and that's not a productive game. So, trauma poker for me, I was feeling like, is my trauma even big enough to compare to these women? So, trauma poker is where we say, like, you know, I see your trauma and I raise you. So, like, I see your abusive stepdad and I raise you being in a car accident and losing the use of one of my limbs permanently, right? We're like, we're comparing our traumas to other people's traumas, whether we're saying like, oh, that was her trauma, big deal, right? Where we're sort of being judgmental about it or the other way, like my trauma just doesn't sound so big compared to this person's trauma. That's what I felt a little bit as I was conducting this interview. And as we were talking about post-traumatic parenting in the context of what these women have been through, I kept feeling this desire to play trauma poker and say, well, my trauma just doesn't sound nearly as bad as your trauma. So your trauma was just so much worse. And their trauma was extremely traumatic, right? I mean, being in a mass shooting event, I can't even imagine what that feels like. But the reality of parenting with PTSD, the reality of living our lives with traumatized brains doesn't really matter what our trauma is. It doesn't matter the like cold and dry facts of the case. What matters is what sense did our brain make of it? How traumatized did we feel? How alone were we in our suffering? How overwhelmed did we feel? How much of our sense of safety in the world was shaken, right? What did that do to us? What PTSD did that create, or acute stress disorder, or just post-traumatic stress without the full disorder, what did that do to us? That is what we have to remember. So I invite you, if you are someone who plays trauma poker, to listen to this episode with keeping trauma poker in mind, keeping in mind that our traumas don't have to map onto each other's for them to be traumatic. If an experience left you shaken, if an experience left you feeling unsafe in the world, If an experience was too big for your brain to metabolize, if an experience left you alone with emotions that you couldn't process and that you couldn't use, then you can welcome to our club, welcome to post-traumatic parenting because we get it, we've been there. We're post-traumatic parents too. So that's my reaction to having had this conversation with these incredible women of Survivors Path, that temptation to play trauma poker, just becomes so overwhelming in us. But let's not discount our own experience of our own experience. I hope you enjoy the episode as much as I enjoyed this conversation. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Post Traumatic Parenting Podcast, where we give our kids a normal childhood, even if ours was anything but. Today, I am so excited to be joined by some of the members of Survivor's Path. Their mission is all about supporting other victims of Or other survivors of mass shootings and mass violence events. And I'm going to say how honored I am to have you all here because I think this is a topic when we talk about it that is so tender for us. I think it's a topic that just grabs us by the throat. Post-traumatic parenting is all about giving our kids that healthy childhood that we didn't have. And it can be about anything, right? It can be about any trauma that we experienced in childhood that really now is interfering with our ability to parent, interfering with our ability to be our best selves and show up in the way we want to in our lives. But I am just going to own how amazing it feels to have you all here because I feel like with trauma, it's one of those things that can be so individual, right? Like what is traumatic? What is that event that is too big for our brains to process? But for all of you, I feel like you are talking about events that everybody perceives as this sounds like the most terrifying experience. So I just wanna thank you all for being here because I feel like so many parents can relate to your stories. And Amy, I know that when I heard you on the Confronting Columbine podcast, there was so much for me that resonated in your story even though our traumas were so different. So if I can ask you guys to introduce yourselves one by one, that would be amazing. My name is Amy Over,
1: and I am a mother of four. Um, I have my niece and nephew that live with me, and then my two children. They're all my children. So I am uh, the founder of Survivor's Path. My name is Michelle Wheeler. I am a survivor.
2: I'm Amber Brown, and I am a Route 91 survivor. I am Haley Steinmuller.
3: I am the only non-parent here, but I work in education and I am also a Route
0: 91 servant. So I just want to, you know, first contextualize why I invited you all on the podcast. I feel like for me, Amy, when I heard your story on confronting Columbine and particularly when you spoke about the panic attack you had when you dropped your daughter off at kindergarten the first time and how it like came out of nowhere. I so resonated. I remember like I pulled over and had to process it like I was listening in the car and I pulled over and had to process it because as much as I teach post-traumatic parenting and as much as I talk to post-traumatic parents all the time and I'm always talking about people's trauma stories, that was so resonant to my story. And even though our traumas are so different, right? My trauma, I was not in fear of, um, I was not in fear of my life. Still, that feeling of when I sent my daughter off to kindergarten for the first time was actually, um, I guess, primary, which is like, you know, the year before first grade in our school sitting, I had that exact same thing where I sent her on the school bus and I said, bye, see you later. And then she got onto the school bus Wave goodbye like any other kid. I was, like, with all the other moms and some of the other moms, they were, like, oh, my gosh, your first time sending your kid off. This must be so emotional for you. And I walked inside the house and I froze because I was, like, what if I don't see her later? Like, what if she doesn't come back? But, like, I was literally, literally listening for, like, the school bus, like, a screech of brakes for, like, thinking of, like, all the things that could go wrong between now and, like, when she gets home at 2. And I remember I was frozen at my kitchen table. Like I had data to code. I was in NYU at the time and I had data to code for a research project and I could not move. Like I was just sitting there completely frozen, not having a flashback. That's a whole different, that's a whole different fun saga in uh, parenting, but just, but what if she doesn't ever come home? But what if not? Like, mm-hmm. And could not get past it. And thought like my husband, who did not experience trauma in childhood, is not going to even understand what I'm trying to say. Like, you know, I, I like have therapy in a week. I can talk to my therapist then. But meanwhile, like, can't move. Just can't move. Like, mm-hmm. watching the minutes tick by and totally frozen. And I remember when I heard what you said about like, you know, how you weren't prepared for the panic attack that you had mm-hmm. as you dropped your daughter off at kindergarten. I, I just it just hit me like a punch in my gut. Can you tell that story and like the perspective you're at now with it?
1: Yeah, so um it's kind of coming full circle now as my daughter is about to graduate high school next year. So, I dropped her off at preschool. I picked her preschool for a certain reason because there was a fire department across the street and uh, I heard great things about this preschool and and I thought I had it all planned out as a mass trauma survivor, thought that you know, I was going to send my kid off to school. She had her little bow and her backpack on and uh I dropped her, went to go drop her off and we, you know, we were holding hands and everything was great. And I get into this little, you know, the ceilings were kind of low and I just remember the walls like caving in and I immediately, I almost fainted. I had uh, my first panic attack. I didn't know what it was. Curtis, my husband, got her into her classroom and I was flushed and sweating and just all the the physiological things that go on when you have a panic attack. And then he took me straight to the emergency room because I told him, I was like, I think I'm having a heart attack or something. Took me to the hospital. And while I'm freaking out that my daughter's in school for the first time, I'm thinking like, oh my gosh, I'm going to die. Like, I feel like I'm going to die. And then, um, the doctor, you know, after running you know every test under the sun, he's like, "Have you ever had a panic attack?" And I was like, "No, what's that?" That was the first start of my panic disorder, and I had chronic panic attacks every day for about a year and a half. And that was probably the hardest time in my life and the most vulnerable time in my life. Now that my daughter is about to graduate next year and she's looking to go to college, And just living in Colorado with all the mass traumas we've had recently, it's bringing back up that physiological response now. Like I'm starting to feel the panic attacks starting to creep up. I'm on medication and stuff, so it keeps it at bay. But I'm definitely going back to therapy now and trying to navigate, you know, what it's like for her to the fear that she feels that school, the, you know, just all the things and then her leaving me. That the fear of her leaving me, I guess, is
0: is real. (laughs) It's terrifying. I mean, I I think for everybody, we don't even realize it. Like when they're so little, we don't realize it. But then the older they get, like it's all about the separation. In the end, there's the attachment, but there's also it's like a series from when they're born. Right, they're separating, and they keep separating. And as beautiful as it is, you know, we want them to fly. I have a a friend who has a special needs children. As one of her children, she always talks about like. At least I have a forever baby. And I feel like that's true. It's a beautiful way of reframing it. But like when they're not forever babies, they leave us. It's meant to happen. My oldest four kids are, you know, already out of the house and it's so much harder. It's meant to happen. And yet, yeah. it's painful.
1: I think for a second, I was a mo- an emotional wreck yesterday because Michelle and I are about to go through our 24th anniversary with Columbine. And I, uh, my daughter's going to prom next year. And I got choked up yesterday because I was thinking about how my last normal memory was going to prom. Do you feel that way, Michelle? Like that my, that my last memory of being a normal child before Columbine was Columbine. Yeah. Or was it prom?
4: It made me think of the date. It was April 17th. It was the Saturday before the shooting. This is the last normal day.
1: Yeah. And I I feel like at some point I'm like, is my daughter, is this her last normal fun memory? And and that's where my mind goes as a parent. I had
0: the same feeling, same thoughts. There is something that I see in post-traumatic parenting classes a lot, which is an inexplicable anxiety around when our kids are around the age we were when we experienced trauma. For me, I used to get these terrible, terrible panic attacks when my daughter turned 16. And I remember I was in therapy and my therapist was trying to help me with it. And I Everything she was saying, it wasn't, it wasn't it. Then I was speaking to a fellow post-traumatic parent and she said, you know, I wonder if you say to yourself, like, 16 is when the really bad things start happening. Like, 16 is when your daddy dies. 16 is when you develop PTSD. 16 is when people, like, your life goes off the rails. And that, like, hit me, like, yes, that's it. Like, she's 16, so my body is panicking right now. Amber and Haley, I wonder, like, where are your kids in terms of, like, the age that you were when you experienced your trauma, like how close or far are they?
2: Well, I experienced my trauma at the age of forty, so he's okay. He's got a while to go. Got a while, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So it's for me, it's a little different. I didn't have childhood trauma; I have adult trauma. So it's more about he was already born and cognitive and knew what was happening as I was going through my trauma, which is hard so parenting him through almost losing his parent and his aunt getting shot so she survived but he still talks all the time about how my auntie melissa was shot in at a concert so wow. um it's a different experience i think just because it wasn't childhood trauma that i'm trying to get over i'm still trying to get over we're only 6 years into not even 6 years into our trauma journey so
0: i imagine that for him you know the fact that he was able to ask you questions and the fact that he you know understands what happened is its own flavor, yeah, absolutely,
2: yeah, and he's a he's a boy, so he's at the age where he thinks violent video games are really fun and doesn't really understand why I don't like hearing him play them, or he like he understands, but it doesn't really resonate because his brain is still forming, so for him, it's confusing, like why is this bad for me to play these video games or watch these movies or these shows and trying to, you know, get him to understand, like, I'm not going to keep him from watching them because they're a part of the world and growing up, but understanding why I can't be in the room when he's doing so.
0: And how, how old is he now? He's 11. He'll be 12 in September. Yeah. So it's like the primary age for boys with like working out, like, their interest in like power dominance and control with those kind of video games. And it's just cool and it's loud and it, you know, and not seeing that. Yeah. Violence isn't cute. Like.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I know Amy's son and my son are relatively the same in age and I know he has some of the same interests (laughs) as my son. So.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I could imagine that, you know, when you have a particular sensitivity around that for me, one of my children, you know, my father died of a heart attack after many years of being sick. And one of the big central issues between him and my mom at the time was him smoking. And when one of my children started vaping, which is supposedly safer, you know, that feeling of like, yeah, smoking is really bad, you know, but at the same token, you're a teenager. And my son is, you know, Old enough that he can make some of his own decisions. Like it's not like I can really control what he does. You know, like by the time you're 17, 18, like, you know, mom doesn't really get a vote anymore. But, you know, being able to say to him, this really bothers me. I can't see this. This is painful for me on a whole different level. Many moms do not like watching their teenagers use any substance. I think I'm not the only mom in the world who feels that way. But for me, it is particularly painful. And yet I I can get that you're doing what your friends are doing. I can get that it's cool. I can get that, you know, I can understand all of that. But at the same token, yeah, it's it's a hard one because there's a big part of my body that just wants to be like, no, do not do this. You may not do this. I need to, like, grab this away from you with all of my strength. And I know I can't. But, yeah, I could see where that would be. So difficult because you're experiencing it on multiple levels. Like you're experiencing the 11-year-old developmental stage of like, but everyone's watching this show and everybody's playing this game and it's cool. And like, and then the other side of like, should this game even exist in the world right now?
2: Right. Absolutely. Especially, you know, some of them I've had people say, well, Fortnite's not that bad. And I'm like, have you ever watched your kid play Fortnite? Like, it's Mm -hmm. terrible. (laughs) (laughs) It's awful. It's awful. But yeah, I mean, it's just, it's a part, I mean, in our age or demographic, it was Grand Theft Auto, right? Like there's always right. been something. So Mason um, just
1: asked for that game, by the way.
2: Grand Theft Auto.
1: Yeah. I said, no, it's <laughs> <was> like, no, <laughs> <Part> <laughs>
0: absolutely not. That's a hard <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. Do you ever tell your kids, like, this is hard for me because of what I've been through? Like, do you have that conversation?
2: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'll tell him why. Like, he'll be like, why? And I'll tell him, do you remember what I went through? Do you remember what happened with me and Auntie Melissa? And he's like, oh, yeah, okay,
0: sorry, I'll turn down. (laughs) Right. 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 they're not making that connection, like at all. No. I think it can be harder sometimes when it's not a linear connection, you know, like when it's something else that also feels connected, but, you know, isn't you know, directly connected. And then it's like a little harder because I could explain vaping to my son. Like, you know, my father was addicted to smoking. That's why he had all of his heart attacks back then when I was a change of life baby. So my parents were significantly older. So when my father started smoking, it was still considered healthy. That's how many years we're going back. (laughs) So, you know, I can explain the vaping, but then when it's other unhealthy habits, a little harder, right? To be like, you know eating habits and of course parents should not be the ones who are like really getting involved with their older teens eating habits too much but like when i see that it's also it's triggering but it's not something i can say necessarily yeah i can talk about me and like why (laughs) health is important to me and what i do to reclaim my body and what i do to keep myself healthy but yeah but it's harder i think when there's like a trigger that we can't really explain to the kids so clearly No. (laughs) Yeah, but that's that. just, I can just see that as just so complicated, like so Mm -hmm. difficult to navigate.
2: Yeah, you get through it. I mean, it's, I think every day is different. I don't know for you, Amy, because your kids are a little older, except for Mason, but every day is a little different. And also I feel has a lot to do with their development and their feelings and hormones and changes and how they process things. So one day they may process things great. And then the next day they're having a meltdown. And then I have a neurodivergent kid too. So he doesn't process things normally, I guess, quote unquote, normally, whatever that
1: means.
0: (laughs) Right, it's hard to predict like what he'll process.
2: (laughs) Exactly.
1: And Haley, I'd like to hear your perspective on you know, you're a counselor at a high school and and at a middle school. What are you seeing like with trauma and and kiddos and how they're dealing with mass shootings and, and stuff?
3: Yeah. So I am a middle school counselor and I would say my first year, it was two years after my shooting, we had kind of an intro with the sixth graders and we were letting them ask the principal questions. And one of the kids raised their hand and asked like, If a shooter comes in, what do we do? And that was kind of my first experience realizing that kids in sixth grade were already thinking about that. Our high school had a shooting in 2006. And so luckily, I work at a school where they're really supportive of that. But just recently, when we had the shooter from the school in Denver, we were on lockdown because he had come up our highway and ended up in like 10 minutes from our school. And so... That was a pretty big situation. The kids were not sure what was happening. The teachers weren't sure. And that was, I mean, mine wasn't a school shooting, but pretty triggering for me just because I was kind of like on the front lines of if something does happen, if they're coming to our school. But I would say our kids are pretty supportive there. Like, you know, I had the experience that they smashed like a milk carton in the cafeteria, which, you know, they're middle schoolers, they're going to do for sure. But they had smashed a milk carton and it sounded like a gunshot in there. And it was on the anniversary of my shooting. And so I kind of lost it on them and had to go up and explain why I had been so freaked out. Cause you know, to them, it was just a normal day and a normal kid thing to do. And then that particular kid that I had explained it to kind of like started telling other kids and was like, don't do this. And anytime anyone else would do it would kind of like have my back on that and go tell the other kids to stop before I could even do it. So They're definitely aware of the situation. I don't know if it's because, you know, a lot of their parents were in the shooting that our school had, but yeah, they're definitely aware and pretty supportive, I would say.
0: Sounds like the kids are really lucky that they have adults like you around where you're saying, well, this is what would happen if there was a mass shooting, as opposed to like, oh, well, don't worry your little heads about it. It's not going to happen.
3: Yeah. And yeah, I mean, we have a rule. So the shooting that happened, it was an adult that had come into the building And so we have a school policy that no hoods are allowed in the building at all. And, you know, for middle schoolers and high schoolers, of course, that's all they want to do is wear a hood. And so that is probably one of our biggest district wide rules that everybody follows. And a lot of the kids didn't understand why, you know, they just thought it was another one like, oh, take your hat off inside, that kind of thing. And nobody had really been talking about it too much. Nobody would explain why to the kids that, you know, weren't even alive when the shooting happened. But once I got there, I started telling them, honestly, and my assistant principal was a first responder at the time. So he was the one who came in and responded to that shooting. And so I always ask him, I'm like, if you're going to argue with me, you can go talk to him about it. Like this is his experience. And I'm probably more candid than they would like me to be, but it's made them a lot more aware and more respectful of that and making sure that we have that safety going on there.
0: I feel like candidness is actually the best when it comes to kids because Otherwise, they just have to sit and just sit with their anxiety and just sit with, like, their reactions and their feelings so it's so much better to be like well this is what happened this is why we made the rule this is what would happen if something like that ever happened these are our plans it's like when a Mm -hmm. kid asks you like what would happen to me if you died you know and like we want to say things like well this well do you think you'd be left alone who would take care of you what do you think would happen so if both me and dad were unavailable who would take care of you then would this aunt take care of you Would that aunt take care of you Would this grandma take care of you right like as opposed to being like, well, it isn't going to happen. Because then what happens to the kid, they just have to sit there with the anxiety. And I feel like the function of anxiety is to keep us alive and keep us safe. So it's not like the child's question is unrealistic i mean i get the like i want to keep my hood up you know like i get the like little kid you know like i Mm -hmm. I was a school psychologist for years so i get the whole like you know you can't tell us what to do like you know we're you know 12 years old you know but i I get it but then at the same token this is a safety rule it's not one that's just because like it's preferable or like we think it's pretty there's like an actual safety reason i see no reason not to tell them like some teachers are
3: giving them the because i said so rule and uh, or reason
0: And I started
3: telling them the real answer and they responded better to that. Honestly, they respect the rule more when I've told them the actual reason why.
0: Yeah. I also like to teach kids practical skills. So I've had that with my own kids a few times. I make sure that everybody in my family knows first aid because obviously it was very helpful. That Even though my father did not survive, he had a heart attack in front of me. I did CPR. He didn't survive. And that was what traumatized me. And that was what gave me PTSD. The fact is, I think I would have been a lot more traumatized had I been standing there helplessly and not known something what to do. At least I tried. Right. And And I feel like that's just one of those life skills. And I'm clear with my kids why I want them to have certain life skills. Like my kids will know, I want everybody to know how to change a tire. I want everybody to know how to pump gas. I and mean, we live in New Jersey. You don't pump gas in New Jersey. You still should know how. I want everybody to know how to like iron a shirt and fry an egg. And like, you know, I just have these like <laughs> life skills that you need to have. And I'm very into like, this is about survival. And first aid is one of those life skills. Everyone should know how to, should know some basic self-defense. You know, like these are just things I want you to know. Yeah, it makes me feel calmer when you're out in the world. But then, at the same token, um, it's just life skills that I want you to have. There shouldn't be any more meaning about it around than that. Yeah,
1: Michelle, how's your how's your daughter doing with the anniversary coming up? And like, are you candid with her about like your story and stuff? Yeah. Well, so when
4: Layla was five, I started telling her, you know, what happened to mom. But I did it in a very Developmentally appropriate way. Mom sad this day because two boys made sad choices and sent mommy's friends to heaven. And then slowly, I've gained the story more with her. She does attend Columbine High School right now, and because of the time of year, we have a lot of people who think it's a lot of fun to make threats um, within this area. There was an active; it was deemed incredible, but there was a threat made to Columbine, Chatfield, Dakota Ridge in Bear Creek, that something will happen between now and the 20th. And I'm lucky enough to have a good enough relationship with the principal now at the school that I went up and I was like, I really need to know the details and that I don't feel safe sending her to school. And that's one thing as a parent is trying not to install my fears onto my kid. I want her to have the most normal normal life as possible she knows that i was in the shooting she knows um i was a senior she does not know my path and she will not know my path out or what exactly happened that day until she's completely out of school and that her brain is mature enough to understand the full concept of what mom went through you know she knows on april 20th we do a family day i have my rituals that i do And she's very respectful of that. They do one thing that came out of Columbine is they do a day of service every 20th, no school. Each student does something for the community. They, you know, clean up weeds, they go into schools and read. My kid is going to a local elementary school to be a science fair judge. We're trying to give back to the community and when she started at Columbine, it was really hard to let her out of my grip that day because I, if I have her and my husband close to me, nothing bad's gonna happen to it, is how my brain works. And so letting her go off and do these things and understand what these things really mean in this community has been good for her, but hard for me. And I had a very candid talk with the principal this week, and he, I mean, Columbine is extremely safe. They have armed um, sheriff's officers at all times, and they actually upped it this time because of the threat. They have um, security. I mean, these kids can't do anything without anyone noting, noticing, but I did end up keeping her home Friday because I just could not, I just, I couldn't let her go. You know, my kid's a good kid. She's got a 4.3. I mean, I tell her every day, you could probably stop turning your assignments into some of your classes. So you'll still, you'll still have your 4.3. <laughs> so she, and I told her, I gave her the, you know, I hadn't given her any of the details yet. And I gave her the choice earlier that week, there was a shooting in a, in the park right next to the high school. So they were already on secured hold once that day or once in that week. And so it was, it was too much for my mommy survivor heart to take anymore. And I felt better with her home and I, I got judgment from family members, but felt better.
3: <laughs> I knew where she
4: was and she was safe. So, and she did all her homework before 10 a.m. So this is definitely not my kid. <laughs>
0: No one gets to judge. I feel like that's something that a lot of people... Try to do. I know, I remember when I started, because aside from treating trauma, right, I I hear a lot of assault stories. So I actually started going to a self-defense class, ended up getting my black belt. This was like an important sort of partially health, partially reclaiming my body from PTSD, but partially I want to feel safer in the world. There's only so many stories you can hear about people being violently assaulted before you feel really unsafe in the world. So this was me. And then somebody saying, you know, making comments about like, well, isn't this like more about your trauma than anything else like okay and if it is and the fact that I made sure all my kids took some self-defense classes enough to have basics most of my kids didn't pursue it past the amount of time to have like basic proficiency but okay but yeah it is about my trauma and so
4: yeah I unfortunately I mean and, and for myself and the other moms on here can relate or not relate I do feel judged when I hold her home I um, before she went to Columbine she never went to school on the 20th and you know, and judged by family members, I had a doctor tell me, "I shouldn't teach Layla when we go into stores, show me five places to hide. I shouldn't do that, but in my mommy brain, I want her to think, "Okay, I have these cabinets, I have you know this exit, I have this and this and this where would i where would be the best place for me to hide and even to this day, she'll say, "Well, I can go here here and here. Unfortunately, we are judged because we should you know quote unquote be over our trauma by now." My trauma started from young age. My father was very abusive. And so I have been diagnosed with complex uh, PTSD and I'm very protective of her. I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to put her in, or if I am going to send her out in the world, I'm going to give her all the tools that I possibly can, but also try not to put all my fears on her. And it's hard and it's a judgment world. And unfortunately, people who have not experienced a trauma of some sort are a minority and hopefully the, the vision of parenting and the judgment of parenting changes, but I've always gotten a lot of judgment on how I've handled my trauma around my kid.
0: I have two, Is Michelle. Common. Yeah. Is that like, does everybody feel that way that like they've been judged for how they're handling their trauma?
1: Yeah, yeah. I think like people have like my family members have, have like said that I can't handle hard things. Basically, Like, like <laughs> I'm not able to handle hard things because I'm a, you know, a mass shooting survivor. I, yeah. I kind of feel judged like that a if couple of years. Ever, sorry, yeah, go, go ahead. ahead. You no, know, you go ahead. I said, if there's ever
4: a shooting that's happened in the news that comes across your phones or your notifications, my family will look at it and then look at me like, is she going to gonna lose it? Is she going to hit the floor? Is she going to cry? It's very, I feel very black sheepish around close personal family It's just a really kind of yucky feeling where I don't really share my traumas or my triggers or my fears unless I'm sharing it with another trauma survivor, another shooting survivor.
0: Because people are just not going to get it or they're just (laughs) looking at you as like in some ways, both fragile and damaged. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like
1: weak, like we're weak um, and we can't handle things. I don't know. For instance, I went through a major trauma with a few years ago with my sister-in-law a boy across the street from us shot himself in the head. I was the first one, my sister-in-law and I were the first one on the scene. And I remember having blood all over me. And it was a horrific experience. But I remember when the cops came, my sister-in-law and everyone were like, well, she's a Columbine survivor, like, take care of her. She's a Columbine survivor. And I know everyone was trying their best at the time, but like it was just really hard to hear like, you know, like I can't handle this because I'm a Columbine survivor. And, you know, and I've I haven't dealt with this death yet. Um, I've compartmentalized it because it is so traumatic because it was my it was my daughter's best friend that shot and killed himself on accident. He was playing with a gun and shot and killed himself. You know, when I have I have past trauma, like childhood trauma, I've I've dealt with a lot of death. So I have a fear of death. That is something that I just deal with. But like when we lost this young man like that, really, it really messed me up. Like and it brought back Columbine to the surface. And then it made me helicopter parent (laughs) a lot with especially like I have this um, unrealistic fear that my son's going to pass away. Like I'm in therapy right now for that, where I'm just like, he's at football practice and I'm like, well, what if he drops dead? Or what if he, what if he, I don't see him again. And Mm -hmm. it's just like this unrealistic fear that I have going on right now. And I know it's, I know it's connected to all my trauma.
0: Yeah. I feel like this is one of the things that has helped me in doing my own research on trauma is that trauma pierces the illusion of safety we have in the world. Like we go through our lives as though we're safe. We don't like, crawl under our car and check our brake lines. We don't, like, put our food through a mass spectrometer because maybe in the middle of the night somebody, uh, you know, poisoned it. Like, if we did that, we'd have OCD, right? Like, we don't. But really, if any of those things had happened, it'd be pretty bad. So, like, when we've been traumatized, we can't anymore live our lives as though we're safe and as though everyone's going to come home and everything is going to be okay. I have that fear of sudden death as well, where, like, this thought will just suddenly cross my head. Like my kid is in college. Is he alive right now? You know, or I'll hear about something that happened. One of my kids is in college in upstate New York and I'll hear about something that happened in upstate New York. That's like 60 miles away from where my son is. And I'm still panicking. And it's like New York's a really big state. Like this was like, you know, literally miles and miles away. And yet I think that it's so, it's so common that our brain does that, that our brain is just like, but are people okay? For me, when I hear about sudden death, it's really important that I check in with everybody and that everybody's alive and okay. Like my kids know to like sort of be like, I'm, I'm hot, I'm fine, it's good. Like, you know, they're not going to call and be like, I'm still alive because like they're more socially skilled than that, but they'll call and just be like, hi, Ma, I was thinking about you, you know, like what's doing, you know, which is helpful because, yeah, I just need to, like, my brain is counting all my little checks and making sure that all my little checks are, like, where they're supposed to be, whether they're the grown ones or the ones in my house. I just need to check in with everybody. Um, I think very early on in my marriage, my husband learned that, like, you can't just come home late and not check in. Like, I will have a disproportionate reaction.
1: Yeah, I have to have constant checking in, and my husband does a good job at that, you know, letting me know where he is, if he's late, or I I, because I have this, un I'm not going to say it's unrealistic fear, but it's just this nagging fear that like, I'm going to lose someone that I love. Because I think we've all gone through so much trauma in our lives, even before our our shootings, you know, that like, everyone has trauma. It's just hard to navigate. (laughs) I'm not going to lie, like as a parent of four, you know, um, I just I'm constantly worried you know, and it's exhausting. I don't know if you guys feel that, but it's just like so exhausting sometimes.
0: Yeah, yeah The constant vigilance, right? It's it's, it's mm-hmm. so tiring. Amber, what were you saying? Sorry.
1: Oh, I was just
2: agreeing with Amy. It is, it's constantly exhausting. Like you're just always tired. And I think we have a very acute awareness every time there's another incident and it just compounds everything. So for us, we unfortunately, usually find out first because our networks are so connected. So anytime there's any type of a mass shooting or a mass incident, we I feel like we find out about it before the general public and we're acutely affected by it. And then it affects our parenting that day too. Like I am, I find myself getting very short timbered on days when there's been an incident. It's impactful. I know I don't parent my best those days and I have to, you know, take a beat and apologize later and say, hey, I'm sorry, I wasn't my best self today for you. And it's because X, Y, and Z happened. I know East High for me was really, really hard because my kid is not far away from high school and I don't want to send him to high school in this state. I don't feel safe in Colorado to send him to high school. So we're navigating that too.
0: It's somewhat, it's helpful to know our triggers, but then then you're anticipating your triggers all the time. You know, it's it's one of those like double-edged swords. All the time. All the time. And, you know, it's interesting. I
2: don't know how everyone else on the call feels, but it's interesting to me when there's so many incidents and not all of them affect me. Like some, I'm just like, okay, that's terrible. Another one. And then like every fifth or sixth one, it'll just like, hammer me and I'll just be like, I I can't anymore. Like my brain's done processing this. I it's not normal. It shouldn't be normal. And if it ever does become normal, I'm gonna check myself into a facility because that's not okay with me. Yeah.
0: I feel that about trauma, like we're treating trauma and working with trauma that like it is that double edged, that sword that like if people's trauma stories stopped affecting me, then I should probably get into another line of work. But mm-hmm. on the yeah. other hand, you can't take it all in all the time. So there has to be this sort of, you know, back and forth about managing our triggers, but then also being informed by them.
2: Yeah.
1: Haley, how do you like, when you deal with like kids on a, like a mass level, like, how do you like, do you compartmentalize trauma or like, how do you, I don't know, like, I think your job is amazing. Like, I think you're amazing at what you, what you do. Like on a daily basis with our children. Like it's got to be hard. Yeah,
3: it definitely is and the demographic I work in it is very pro gun and pro second amendment right up there, which I'm not, so that's definitely challenging when I'm working with students um or I'm working with parents and I'm saying, "Hey, we need to lock up guns. We need to, you know, secure them." And they don't always agree. So I feel like I compartmentalize quite a bit. We've had actually quite a bit of suicide and parent death in the past couple of years at my school, which for me, um, my dad passed away when I was seven from cancer. So that definitely, you know, kids that are sixth or tw- like 12th grade when they're losing parents, that's something that I sometimes pull on other people. Cause I'm like, I'm, you know, too close to that, but I definitely compartmentalize and try not to take it home with me because I work in a very small school. I know every single kid. I know most of their parents. Um, I know most of their siblings. And so by the time I get the second or third sibling, you know, I've, I've a pretty close relationship with them. So I definitely have to compartmentalize. Otherwise I would adopt all 200 of them.
0: Yeah. I feel like there is, there's like compartmentalizing and then there's integrating and then there's, you know, making it like, I I forgot which one of you said that, like, you know, turning your mess into a message, which I think is so beautiful. But that idea of like, we do have to go through those steps i know for me i had a interesting interesting whatever confluence of events like what you were saying amy about the boy who shot himself right mm-hmm. after my father died a classmate of mine, well, an underclassman, she had an aneurysm in my school. She actually ultimately died after being in a coma for a while. And it was such a bizarre thing cuz I was a grade above her. And when I went into the room and I was a lifeguard and I knew and I knew CPR. So I went into the room cuz I heard screaming and everybody like all the adults were standing around like, "Did she have lunch? Did she have her period?" And like and I'm like Call the paramedics. She's not alive. Like, I was so taking charge of the scene. And even in that moment, as traumatic as it was, I just saw, like, a trickle of blood out of her eye. And I knew, like, something really serious had happened. She was not going to – this was not – her vacant stare was just like, when you've seen it, you've seen it. But in a way, it also felt like a superpower, like that, like all the adults are standing around trivializing and I am running the scene because I know how to. And in a way, as messed up as that was, (laughs) that I was sort of running the scene and like I was like dispatching people, you called paramedics, you wait outside for the paramedics. You Like, you know, I was like, you know, in charge, knowing that I knew that this is an emergency. This is not a girl on her period who skipped lunch. Like something's really serious is happening here. In a way, it felt empowering. Yeah. In a messed up way.
1: I felt not empowered because, well, my sister-in-law is an amazing ER nurse. She, I will be forever indebted to her because she kept me from going upstairs into the house. She gave me a task and that task was to take care of the mom. So I grabbed the mom and took care of her. But at the end of the day, it's like, I don't think I, I think my sister-in-law knew I couldn't handle it. I couldn't handle it. So she was the one that went up and checked for vital signs and and he didn't have any vital signs, but you know, she went and checked. My trauma with that too comes, I had to go clean up. We hired a person to clean up the crime scene and um, I went and checked to make sure that it was done to our standards and it was not. And so my friend, uh, my best friend and I had to clean up blood and knowing that it was his blood. I just froze. I completely froze in that bathroom. And this is like the first time I'm really even talking about it. Like I just, I froze, you know, and I know it's from my past trauma with Columbine and stuff. So I, I, maybe I'm not, I'm not equipped to handle emergency situations at all. I've done CPR. I've, you know, I, I mean, I've not done it on people, but I've taken CPR training and first aid and um, but I think I freeze in those fight or flight situations and it brought me back to Columbine under the table where I froze, where I did not know where I was going to go, if I was going to run. And then when I finally started running, like it was like slow-mo. So it's just, I don't know, trauma, it just affects you so differently. It's,
0: it's, It's crazy. That's where neuroplasticity doesn't work well for us because I feel like once your brain defaults. To a certain trauma coping tool, it's always going to default that way, you know? So until we train it actively not to, and I think freeze can be very protective, right? I mean, freeze might have kept you alive in that situation. Maybe too much movement could have, you know, attracted the attention of one of the shooters, right? Like, so I feel like for you, freeze actually protected you. So it makes sense your brain would go to that again.
1: Yeah. It's, I don't know. I, I just, I freeze in, um, those kind of like, Situations. And I'm ha- I haven't had a lot of those situations, but definitely when uh, Brandon hurt him, you know, killed himself, I just, it definitely triggered Columbine all over again and triggered past trauma in my life. So.
0: And yet you still had the courage to go, which I think you have to think about. You made the choice to go and to be there with the mom. You made the choice to go back. There's a strong element of courage there.
1: Yeah, it's weird, because they still live across the street. And like, I have had to compartmentalize that situation. Like, I don't talk to her anymore. At all. I don't even look over at their house anymore. I can't. I can't. Um, And I'm not going to move, you know, I I love my house. But, you know, there was a couple years where I was like, I don't know if I like living here. But you know, then COVID happened and then I got two extra kids and, you know, life got a little crazy. So I've had to compartmentalize that situation, but I'm, I'm working with a therapist right right now to bring that out. And because it, it is affecting my parenting, my fears,
0: I am projecting my fears onto my kids.
1: Yeah.
0: I think we all do. I really think we all do. I know for me, what I tend to do in very stressful situations is I dissociate. I'm like completely a robot. I'm not feeling anything, which in a way in an emergency is great. Like I was able to run that scene when my classmate died. Like I was, fi- I was fine in the moment. I was functional in the moment. The problem with dissociating is eventually you have to wake up and it's really bad when you do. But also, I actually learned that it was terrible for my parenting because my brain started knowing that whenever i'm stressed out i can just associate and when you're parenting a bunch of little kids you can do a lot of things in this associated state until one of my kids said it to me like my son was about 10 and he said like i don't like when you go away behind your eyes and i don't like when you're talking to me but like you're saying aha but you're not really there and i don't i don't want you to do that anymore and he started to cry and i realized it was terrifying him and i had thought until that moment that i had this parenting thing down cuz i could like work in the hospital all day, and then come home and, like, take care of the kids in this totally dissociated state. And, like, I have stress management handled. And it was like, nope, that's not actually <laughs> stress management. You yeah, can't parent with presence if you're not present. Like, and when my son actually pointed that up to me, it was like, oh, wow, I need to get a handle on this. And that prompted me to go back into therapy. It's what started me on this journey to write the book was about, like, yeah, that worked great. For trauma. Like it was fabulous. And whenever I'm in a medical emergency, in a way, it's good that I know that I have this adaptive dissociation down, but it's not really that adaptive when you can't break out of it. Michelle,
1: how do you, you know, our anniversary is coming up and I was telling you yesterday I'm on the struggle bus right now. I am I'm riding on the struggle bus right now this week. But like, how do you navigate like working and stuff and like talking with you work with littles. Yeah, I I work in a
4: preschool for a neighboring school district next to Columbine um, School District. This year has been harder. I'm in the office. I have an administration job. So I hear all the threats. I have the security radio with me at all times. The district I'm in was one of the ones targeted by the fake call-ins. We had a couple schools on lockdown. This year has been harder. And every year, you know, I ask my husband because he's He's vigilant and his brain is normally, he had to leave it to beaver type of childhood, Um, no traumas. And he's like, some days you're really good and some days you crash. And this year has been harder, especially with the threats around the school, not sleeping so great. You know, my, I haven't had as many triggers, but just the impatience of not being able to, you know, my daughter loves to tell me everything, which is great. I recommend that for all of you who have little ones you know, get your kids to talk to you. But sometimes I just can't hear the words and the words. She just keeps talking to me. And I, in my brain, I'm saying, you know, please stop. (laughs) Just let me go crawl into bed. But I don't want to, like you said, disassociate from her. I want her to be able to come to me at any point of the year. Just this year, it's been harder. This year has been, I'm a little bit more impatient, struggle bust for sure. Sleeping not great. And I don't know if it's because the last three months I've been in bombarded with threats at work. Um, I've had to do two threat assessments on students. I don't know. It could be 24 years. Every year seems to be different. But it's been difficult to try and parent and to be a normal wife and a normal human <laughs> in this yeah. world.
0: It does feel like when you're dissociated and a kid is talking to you, it feels a little bit like, why is this human making mouth noises at me now? Exactly. Like, that's where my brain goes. Like, But I don't, don't want to tell her hear. that.
4: <laughs> I want her to tell me everything, but it's like, could you pick a different day?
0: <laughs> right. <laughs> Go tell your father. He needs to hear everything. <laughs> I will tell my 12-year-old daughter sometimes things like, I really want to pay attention to you right now, and I really want to hear that story. And she's one of those kids who will tell you and tell you and tell you. And right now, my brain is too full. So what I'm going to do is like I'm going to go for a run, mm-hmm. and when I come back, then I really want to hear everything. You know, like I'll I'll do something to reset my brain because yeah. she will. She is one of those kids who can tell when I'm just uh huh uh huh uh huh, and we're hearing like every detail of what happened in the sixth grade, and like you know, and then this person said this to this person who said this to that. person. It's like I can't even demonstrate who you are. Yeah, <laughs>
1: <laughs> I, I think, think I just have been it, just not present lately. But I'm just going to keep on keeping on and <laughs> try my best. <laughs> but I'm not present
0: lately at all. It seems like both of you. Maybe it is the 24 years thing. Are, are having a lot of struggles now? Yeah,
4: yeah. I think it's just April. April's rough.
0: April's uh-huh. really rough.
1: But it should be such a joyous time because it's my son's, you know, 11th birthday coming up. But I and and it is a joyous time for me on his birthdays on the 25th. And that, but I'm done with Columbine. I feel like yeah. I, I just need to get through that hump of like, I just got to get to April 20th. I, yeah. April 20th, 1121. Once I'm past that, I'm fine. Yeah. And I don't know what I'm doing this year. I took the day off of work. I probably am not going to send my kids to school because I want them to do a day of service. And just knowing that they're safe and home and, and, you know.
0: Yeah. I feel like with discrete trauma, and Amber and Haley tell me if this also resonates with you, takes a month. It's like the two weeks leading up to it is a lot of anticipation and a lot of like a lot of physical anxiety, and then it takes two weeks to like recover from it. So it's like Mm -hmm. the month of the anniversary of whatever, whenever I talk to people with discrete traumas, it's always, and when I say discrete traumas, I mean that one traumatic incident that like really was the thing. It's always like that.
2: Yeah, I think I have a lot of that anticipatory uh, anxiety, and then I don't, I I feel a little bit of it after the fact, but I do feel relief. Like after that day, after October 1st, once it hits October 2nd, and maybe it's because it's the first of the month, I don't know, but I get that anticipate, uh, anticipatory, like trauma and anxiety disorder. And I, I also, I have dissociative disorder. So I seek therapy for that because I'm terrible about disorders. I cannot connect to my body. And so my body doesn't know what to do for two weeks leading up before it. And then that day happens. And then there's like a feeling of relief. Like, okay, I can dissociate again.
0: (laughs) For me, then I feel like I'm run over by a truck and I need two weeks to like just recover. I'm that exhausted.
3: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Amber, I was going to say the same thing that maybe it's because ours is on the first. I feel like for a couple of weeks before that, like I'll kind of think about it here and there. Like, oh, it's coming up. and then the school that I work at, their shooting was like a week before mine. So usually I think about theirs so much and then all of a sudden it's mine. And then I'm immediately after by the second, I'm like, okay, it's done. I have three hundred and sixty five more days to be okay.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But that feel- question I feel like people are not ready for. Like they don't know. Like, okay, the relief. So that's great. But the so at least for me, it feels like I don't know. I was run over by a truck. I, I just recovered from surgery. I don't know like what it is, but like it's this sense of like my whole body was tensed up for such a long time that just that it's like isometric exercise or something, and now I need to like recover as if I just had a medical procedure or something. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I feel like we. Um, just on a side note, like we have so much support. Like that's why we. Developed, you know, survivor's path and stuff like we're we're a close knit group of women that support and love each other and understand kind of where everyone's journeys are at. And, you know, we try to spend anniversaries together sometimes, you know, and I, I've got to be with, um, you know, Haley and Amber at their last anniversary. And that was something to to watch their path and to watch their journey was really important it was just amazing to be a part of that. So there, yeah, there's a lot of trauma and stuff, but like, there's a lot of love out of it too. Like a lot of like friendship and love and camaraderie. And I'm really grateful for these ladies. Cause I don't think I could do it without them.
2: <laughs> we feel it's, the exact same way about you, Amy.
1: Yeah. It's my, just, uh,
2: my fiance always teases me that I need friends who aren't mass shooting survivors. <laughs> Like you, they won't get you.
1: (laughs) (laughs) You know, we just have a sense of humor about like you know we can just joke with each other about certain things. You know, just you know Michelle and I yesterday, I'm like you know I dropped the ball on something and I was like I'm on the struggle bus, girl. Like I am so sorry. (laughs) Like we just get everyone, we just get each other, and there's something about there's something empowering about that. You know, just to know you're not alone. And yeah. that's kind of what, you know, we we just launched Survivor's Path two weeks ago, and we're really eager and excited to get to to talk with people and, you know, talk in a, in a positive way, too, you know, that, you know, look at us now, like, we really have come a long way,
2: mm-hmm. you know, and
1: we're all in different parts of our journey. But think of like, how good we, we really are doing, we joke about it, that we're not doing well, but we really are, you know, and that's something we should be really proud of.
0: In the book, I have this um, model that, that I like to use that worked for me, which is AIM. This idea that we have to accept what happened to us and like we can't psychologically undo it. We have to integrate that into our personalities, like sort of integrate it into our sense of self, into who we are, you know, integrate the skills we've learned, integrate our, you know, what our values are as parents. And then the M is for meaning and mission. Like when we make a meaning and mission out of it, and whether that's a meaning and mission like you've made, which is like we're going to support each other and we're going to support other people who have gone through this, which is such a beautiful meaning and mission to make out of it, or whether it's even just like a meaning and mission in our own lives. Like this is the kind of mom I will be, or this is the kind of, you know, way I want to show up in the world. This is the the small, you know, the three starfish that I can throw back into the ocean, you know, those small things that I can do to make my life meaningful in this way. I feel like that is, and yes, it's a struggle. We keep walking through it. I I I sometimes still don't accept certain aspects of my trauma and I have to like reaccept, I have to reintegrate. But I do feel what you're saying about having a mission is so important as part of healing.
4: Yeah,
1: absolutely.
0: I mean Amber Amber uh, still works with the Rebels project. And you know,
1: like we're all we're all on this mission together, no matter what. We're, we're all in this together and it's a beautiful thing to watch. Like, you know, what the rebels projects doing, what Amber, like what, what you guys are doing is, is amazing. Yeah.
4: Yeah. Amy and I didn't have this support 24 years ago. Mm -hmm. I think Columbine was one of the, the ones that everyone remembers thinking. That's when it Mm -hmm. started and it isn't. We've had many mass shootings before Columbine, but we didn't have the support. And I think being able to give the support and show that trauma can be beautiful. And recovery can be beautiful and ugly and complicated and messy, and you will have life after. afterwards. It will just be different. Yes. Mm-hmm.
0: I think that for anybody to see you and meet you and think like, well, she seems so much more together than I am right now, like especially in the immediate aftermath of something can be so helpful. And as much as we all are like, well, not as together as you think, we're still you know, further, I know I um, volunteer at, like, a grief support network for kids who lost a parent, and, you know, I go to, like, a weekend retreat for teenagers, and that is one of the things. Like, oh, you're like me. You lost a parent, and you had PTSD, and you seem okay, and that's so inspirational for kids. Like, oh, so maybe one day I'll be okay, too. And yeah, sure, we can talk about the, you know, the struggle, and, like, it's not always picture perfect, but then at the same time, there is that, Right. And it's okay not to be okay. You know, I think like, that's
1: something that like the four of us joke and talk about, like, it's okay not to be okay. You know, and I I tell my kids that all the time, you know, like, at home, like, this is a safe place, like you can be a hot mess, like you do do whatever, you know, even if you break down in class or something like, it's happened, it's happened to all of us, or, you know, you break down in public, or, I heard a car backfire recently and um you know I I dropped to the ground you know I mean and then I'm just like okay well that's my PTSD and that's my you know a balloon popping is one of my triggers and I hate balloons I I wish balloons could go away forever but I heard, heard a balloon pop and I I just you know like physiologically get that my heart's racing I'm sweating I drop to the ground you know that trigger response but it's just a part, it's just, it's me, I'm quirky, I'm weird, like, and I'm okay with it, like, I just, I'm okay with it.
0: Right, well, I think yes, it's it's a trigger. And it's yeah. hard,
1: because,
2: you know, some of our triggers are so benign to the rest of the world, like, I talk with my workplace a lot, because I work in a credit union, I work for their corporate office, and we are having a series on psychological safety, and I said, I would love to cover the trauma topic, trauma triggers, And it's just little things like, can you please tell me when you're going to set off an alarm in the building? Because that's going to be a trigger. Let me know if there's balloons in the building, because then I know to stay away from that area because you're going to pop it at some point. Um, You know, if there's going to be where you're going to stick us into some sort of a tornado shelter, can it not be a basement this big? Because that's what I was held in during my shooting. Like just little things that I think the rest of the world doesn't think about it. So when we appear to be overreacting to something that's as benign as somebody's kid's birthday party, it's hard because they shouldn't know, right? Like, I don't want them to know that that's a trigger because I don't want that. That will mean that it's a trigger to them, too. And I don't want them to know that. Right. But being informed of people's triggers, I think, is, is something that we're not really great at as a society in general. And be respectful of our triggers.
0: Mm-hmm. And like, don't pass judgment, right? Like, it's okay. <laughs> right. I, you're right. This triggers me. It's an involuntary physiological response. Just like you wouldn't judge a pregnant woman for like, having a strong reaction to the smell of something that's normally delicious. You know, it's the same kind of thing. I hear the sound mm-hmm. on this frequency. This is what's going to happen. For me, it's, um, you know, sirens for sirens of ambulances. Like, mm-hmm. for me, that's a big trigger. So, you know, yeah, don't, play that unexpectedly. Like, you know, like, don't, don't do that. I just need to know. And I think people make fun of trigger warnings nowadays. Like, you know, there's a lot of like, oh, this is such a snowflake generation, but knowing, okay, there's going to be a trigger. And now I need to decide what I'm going to do about the trigger is only helpful.
3: Mm
2: -hmm. I agree. I feel like some of the responsibility and onus is on us too. I try to advocate for you know, my triggers, I try and tell people like, you wouldn't know this. And I don't expect you to, but please do not do X, Y, and Z around me because it will be triggering. And I do think that that's my responsibility to tell them. I can't hold people responsible for knowing what's going on in my uh, messed up brain, <laughs> my my traumatic brain.
0: Although I feel like PTSD at this point is the way my brain functions, not the way my brain dysfunctions, you know, which mm-hmm. is, sort- yeah, it is what it is. This is my brain. This is how it's going to work. And, uh, you know, I can't apologize for it, even if someone's going to be judgmental. There are just certain things that certain stressors that probably if I really wanted to, and it was really important to me, I could teach myself to tolerate. But why should I? Yeah. Like, it's okay. Like you're saying, Amy, it's okay to be messed up. And it's okay. And it's okay to like, you know, own our stuff. And then at the same token, that like that feeling of people like, seeing us as fragile, seeing us as damaged, but then also feeling the right to pass judgment on something they've never been through. Mm-hmm. You know, it's something that we have to own. Like, no, that's not okay. You cannot judge this. Yeah. I have this rule that just is a four-letter word. I don't allow it to be said in my office. I don't allow parents to say it, about their kid just tell her to, well, she should just, it's like, nope, there's no justice in that. Like, we're not doing that. Like, she should just touch that thing. It's not germy. Like, She has OCD. She is not touching that thing. If she ever does, it's going to be like as if you climb Mount Everest without equipment. Okay, like it's not there's no just there, you know, because
1: then you're not you're not validating that child's feelings. My daughter has an eating disorder and, um, you know, I can't tell her, like, just don't eat that or, you know, like that would be like so damaging to her. Right. You know, I mean, just talking it like you had brought up earlier, like it's not okay to talk about your kids like what they eat. Because I can't, I, I don't we don't talk about that in our in our household. I got in a fight uh last <laughs> last week uh with great grandma because she was talking about weight and how my niece is uh, six feet tall and uh size two and my daughter's not and you know, she was talking about body weight and image. And, and I was like, we don't talk about that. We, that's not okay. So I had to advocate for, you know, I will always advocate for my children, but I was like, please do not talk that way in front of my daughter, like in front of both of my daughters, because Maddie, you know, she has a complex of being too tall and thin. Everyone comments on how tall and thin she is, you know, like I, we've got to get away from, I don't know, just there's so much negativity, you know, I feel like there's just so much negativity surrounding, you know, uh, people just say like, really, they don't think before they speak sometimes.
0: It's really hard. A lot of adults forget that kids grow up and like they feel like they can sort of say their thing to a kid. And like the kid's going to forget, or it doesn't matter, or like, well, I am old enough that I can say my opinion if I want. Or like, I find that a lot of times, like in parenting classes, about like grandmas or like great aunts who feel very comfortable like criticizing parenting or you know giving so to speak helpful advice. Where it's like this child heard this, and yeah. they do grow up, and then you wonder why they don't come visit <laughs> or something. Like, yes. well, you know, yeah, I'm maybe like. It- yeah. it's
1: the worst thing ever, you know I just I don't know. I uh, pe- people say hurtful things to kids a lot of times, you know, where they're they're not
0: thinking about what you know the impact of what they their words. I wonder if being through trauma has sensitized all of us to that sense. Like, kids feel very powerless when adults say those mean things to them. They feel very trapped. You know, you have great Aunt Bertha making that comment about, like, don't eat the cookie. You could look like your, you know, you could look like your sister or whatever. And, like, we know what it feels to feel trapped and powerless in a situation that's bigger than us. So, like, I don't want to do that to some 11-year-old, right? I I don't want to let my 11-year-old go through that. Like, it's not okay. I'm going to set a limit here. Like, you can't say these things. You can't make these passive aggressive comments you, if you have an issue with my parenting, you can talk to me privately about it. If you think you have a concern about my daughter, do- I sometimes like teach in my parenting class, this idea of like going over or under where like you go over by like redirecting, you go under by being like, I love that you love my daughter. Let's talk about this privately, <laughs> you know, like yeah. so that, you know, we don't ruin the relationship, but it, and we don't want to necessarily be disrespectful. But then at the same token, like, no, you're not going to body shame my kid in front of me. Like, no, yeah. you're not going to. That. I'm like that's when
1: mama bear comes out and I'm about to scratch somebody. Like <laughs> I'm just like no, you don't talk about anyone's weight. And you know, I guess I'm really sensitive about that because my mom, my when she was dying from cancer 2 years ago, like one of her last things she said to me was what size are you now? And I'm like, well, I'm not a size 2 anymore, mom. So, you know, I was like, gosh, like why would you say that? Like it's You know, even as, you know, I was 40 years old when she passed away and like, it was almost brought me back to my childhood, you know, of like always commenting on how muscular I was and my weight. And, you know, like, you know, that's like a whole nother, you know, story, but it was just constantly, you know, what size are you or that makes you look fat, what you're wearing makes you look fat. And I just, um, I won't do it to my children. I won't, I won't ever comment on their weight or their or how they look because i
0: think they're beautiful no matter what size they are that goes back to like mission right like i'm going to do this differently or i'm going to you know i'm i'm not going to allow this to happen to my kid like I'm more sensitized to it because I feel like years ago we were not sensitized to just how damaging those comments are. Like we're probably the same generation. I am mean, I'm, in, I'm, in, I'm a, probably a little older than you. I'm in my mid 40s. But I feel like when I was a kid, it was considered very acceptable for a random adult to comment on a kid's weight. It was yeah. OK to have like teams be like, you know the losers and the kids who can actually play kind of you know like like you know setting up teams that way and saying it very clearly like you know here are the clumsy kids who are bad and here's you know the good kids and those are the teams you know like i feel like things like that were said when i was in i remember when i was in first grade and like the reading groups were like very clearly named there was like the slow group and the accelerated group and the group. i was in the slow group <laughs> <laughs> me too yay Yay. i was the add kid with the anger issues and couldn't read so it was fun it's funny because i was even before like all of my traumas although my father was very sick my whole life so he's he had multiple heart attacks in front of me so i was probably traumatized way before i realized it and i always was getting called out about how spacey i was but I was one of those kids that was very frustrating for teachers because they would call on me and I would seem a million miles away, but I would know the answer. Um I've always been good academically, so that was annoying for them. And I used to get told that all the time, like, where's your brain right now? Are you on Mars? And I remember so clearly at one point right after my father had had a heart attack and we were rushed to the hospital. My mom was an anxious person, so she never let me stay home without a babysitter. So I used to just come along in the ambulance. I've done like – I used to do my homework, like in hospital waiting rooms, and – I remember thinking when, my, when I was 12 and a teacher was like, where's your brain out? And I remember thinking, like, do you want an honest answer? Because I could give you one. I was very shy, so I wouldn't have. But I remember that was the first time, like, my inner snarkiness started to come out. Like, yeah. uh, you know, like, do you want an answer? Like, I could give you an answer, <laughs> but this is going to derail your whole class. <laughs> like, this will not be, will not be a fun conversation. I feel like we don't do that anymore to kids. Like, even what you were saying, Amber, about, like, honoring your son's desire to play the games that his friends are are playing. Like, mm-hmm. he's a person. He doesn't have the valence around violence that you do. He wants to play what his friends are playing. And, like, yep. the fact that you're not like, nope, you're never playing those games. They will never be in my house. The fact that you're like, we have to negotiate this, I think is so respectful of him.
2: Yeah. Because they have to live in this world, right? Like, I co-parent with my ex-husband and his take is very different. And there's definitely, I guess, a lot of, a lot more strict boundaries at dad's house than my house. And we parent very well together and it's fine. But I try and tell his dad all the time is that they're going to do it, whether you are supporting them in it or not. So if you're teaching him why this is uncomfortable for other people, then at least he has some sensitivity around the proper places, times, volume in which to play these games so that it's not hurting other people, Um, you know, and then talk about why the actions in that game probably aren't the best to set to realism. Like, don't think that this is the real world. There's a reason they look like cartoon characters. So, you know, it's hard, but I feel like if I restrict him from that sort of thing, he's just going to find a way to do it. And it's not going to be pretty because it's not going to be explained to him as to why people have issues with some mm-hmm. of the, the things
0: that they're oh, doing. Oh, I think you're 100% right. From years of treating teenagers, I will tell you that, you know, the, the parents who have that kind of just say no mentality, I will mm-hmm. tell you because in, in psychotherapy, right, this isn't one of those things I ask parents to sign away. Like, I can't tell you the non-dangerous things your kids are doing. You know, your kid's doing something that's actually dangerous to self and others. You're going to know about it, but your kid is doing, watching that movie, you don't let, playing that video game, you don't allow, vaping, something that's not imminent threat to life. I'm not going to tell you, you don't know how many of those conversations I've had with kids about movies they've watched that like, it grabs my throat that a kid that young is watching a movie like that, like, you know, just like, oh my gosh. But then at the same token, at least she and I, at least she's in therapy so she and I can talk about the really disturbing scenes she's seen and help her understand what is there for the kids who aren't in therapy? What happens? You watch something super disturbing and then you have nobody to talk to about it because your parents forbade it. And they were just like, we will never discuss this. We're not doing that. You know, like, and then what? You know, you're you're stuck with that. Everything that those, you know, games and movies
2: are portraying, yeah, it's a little unrealistic, but that stuff does happen. So they live in a world where they're going to, unfortunately, have to come to grips with violence and crime and negative things happening to them. And if we just say, no, you're not allowed to see it, it doesn't mean it's not going to happen. So.
1: I have three teenagers. So Haley understands this. Like I was so proud of my nephew. He was starting to become sexually active. He didn't feel comfortable talking to me. So he talked to Haley. And like that meant the world to me, not only as Haley as my friend, but like he went to her to ask for condoms. And then we, you know, Haley was like, dude, we got to talk about this. Like, you know, I remember we were like, you've got to know Amy, you know, what's going on. And, and I was like, okay. And then um, I ended up catching them. <laughs> but so that was like a totally different story. But then we have like a family talk about like what's being sexually active means and like the responsibility behind that. And like, we talk about what I talk with my teens about sex and drugs and alcohol and, vaping and we talk. there's no like discussion that like we we can talk about anything in our house Um, and they feel comfortable and not only with me but they feel comfortable going to my friends and that's what like that meant the world to me that like they know that they have my friends that they could go and chat with you know my daughter and I got in a fight last week really bad she drove to my best friend's house and talked to her you know and then calmed down and then Bri and I ended up coming back to the table and like talking about that, talking about like why we were fighting. But we had to cool off. But it's just, you know, this parenting stuff is really tricky. It, <laughs> it takes the village. It takes the village. It takes the village. Takes village. <laughs> but you know, like I know that my kids know, like that they could go to Haley, they could go to Amber, they could go to Michelle, they could go to anyone, and that's really important. You know that they're advocating for themselves too.
0: Yeah, for me, I was very alone in my trauma, meaning that I purposely hid my PTSD from my mom because I thought I was schizophrenic and I just felt so bad for her. Like she lost her husband and now her daughter slowly going crazy because I was having flashbacks that were very real. Like, I'd be Mm -hmm. sitting in class learning chemistry, and I was back in my father's bedroom doing CPR on him because an ambulance went by. So I thought, because I was volunteering at the time in, like, a nursing home for duly diagnosed patients, I thought I just self-diagnosed. Like, I never heard of PTSD. I had no idea there was such a thing as flashbacks. This was back in the, you know, early 90s. So like, well, was it the early 90s? It was the late 80s. Um, And like, nobody knew about PTSD back then. It wasn't popularized. There was no Google. Like, there was, I couldn't like be like, hey, Google, what does it mean when I see like my dead dad? You know, like, I, I just couldn't do anything like that. So I just was sure I was schizophrenic. I was seeing things that weren't there. My poor mom, like she's barely coping with losing her husband. And now her daughter's crazy. So I was very alone in my trauma, not because my mom couldn't have heard it. My mom was actually a school guidance counselor. She was an incredible person. And I probably could have gone to her, but I didn't want too cuz i felt bad. I never want my kids to feel alone in anything. Like i always yeah. want to be their first address of like mom i did this thing and i know i'm going to get in trouble for it but i want to tell you that it happened cuz i need help. I don't care what the thing is, you know. I'd yeah. rather hear about it. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, i i think that having
1: that open dialogue with your teenagers and with all your kids, you know, is it but also for them to know that there's like they've got a village. I think that's really an important with teenagers and and my kids, like, they know that they have, you know, if they can't come to me and they feel like they're in trouble, then they have a group of people and people in their lives that they know that they can go to. But usually they do come to me. And if they don't, I trust my friends to, you know, sometimes I don't have to know everything and that's okay. I've had to, because I am such a helicopter mom that like, I've had to realize that like, it's okay that I don't know every little detail of my child's brain and what they're, what they're going through or there's a struggle they're going through or something. But if they can, they can advocate for themselves and
0: say, Hey, okay, I, how am I going to fix this problem
1: and you've go to somebody that
0: s- they trust? Yeah. Sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt, but you've built them such a network of like, If it's not me, there's another, there's like another mama bear in your world that you can go to. And the fact that they're willing to do that, I think they do sometimes. Sometimes we're not the address, right? There sometimes has to be another trusted adult who's the right address just because of like embarrassment or just because of like who's well placed to handle it. I remember my daughter going to a friend of mine who taught her in high school with something she was going through before she came to me with it. And it was that feeling of like, you know what? I'm glad she spoke up. I'm glad she went to an adult. I'm glad she went for help. Like she didn't just try to cope with it on her own. She didn't come to me and it made sense that she didn't come to me because I wasn't there. They were like on a school retreat and something happened. And like, you know, I'm glad that she sought out adult support. And I'm Mm -hmm. glad that my friend was there for her.
3: Yeah. Yeah. As much as you're open and you're wanting to be that first person from the kids' perspective, I see this a lot. They know that their parent is number one, but they still feel comfortable going to somebody else. And that's a lot of times kids at my school, their parents aren't Big on therapy, and so me being at the school, they can come kind of get a similar idea of therapy, but not as long term. And then you know we'll help call together, and parents are like, "I'm prepared for the kid like telling me their parents going to freak out and be mad, and they're going to get grounded." And then we call the parent, and the parents like, "I'm just so glad you told somebody. I'm like t- completely fine with whatever's going on." And right. I think that's just you can be open. Kids are still going to have the idea that parents are going to be mad regardless
0: right? And they're mm-hmm. sort of like using you as like the test balloon, you know, like I'm floating this, I'm floating this with Haley, and then she'll help me think of like the <laughs> right words to use with mom, <laughs> you know? Yeah. yeah,
3: I feel like I use that with my age too. Like I'm a little bit, I was 22 or 24 when I started working at the school. And I think the kids see that too. I'm, you know, I'm in social media with them and I see like what they're on and we watch the same shows. And so I try to use that as much to my advantage as I can to be the middle ground between some of the older parents and the younger kids. And yeah. Mm -hmm. You're so good
1: with the kids. You're so good with like my teens and, you know, like they get into shenanigans. They're, 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 they're constantly into something. They're good kids, but you know, they, they're experimenting, they're doing things and I don't have to know everything. It hurts sometimes not like if I'm not the first person, but at the end of the day, I'm glad they
0: went to somebody, you know, yeah, that's like the most important thing. And it takes courage to make room for that, right? Like to be like, oh, my kid is going to my friend and like, I'm fine with that. Like that takes guts because like there is that feeling of like, no, I just want to hold them close and I want to protect them and I want to be the one who fixes the mess and I I just, you know, I want to do it all and like, we can't. No, no. But all
1: we can do is, you know, give them the skills to advocate for themselves and figure figure
0: that out. So... Yeah, I think that willingness of a kid to go find an adult support, that in and of itself says like, oh, we parent them well enough that they know that there's an adult who could support them non-judgmentally. There will be an adult who will hear them out and help them. Yeah. Thank you all so much. I just want to be mindful of the time because I see we're like running at the end. But thank you all so much for joining me. I feel like this episode is going to help so many people. I think it's so interesting that like our traumas were all so different and yet parenting with PTSD can be so similar. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I feel like what you're doing with Survivor's Path and like going and being that support for other people. I mean, sadly, I would hope that your services will never be needed again. But like realistically, we know that unfortunately this world is just lovely. And, you know, your services probably will be called on, but that you're able to do that and be a support for other people and like bring awareness, like even just advocating for triggers, because there may be other people in the workplace who have other triggers from other situations, like just being that person who's like, I can talk to you about this. I can come and be a support and I can share my story with you. I think in the end, that is the most healing thing we can do for the world. Absolutely. Thank you
1: so much for having us. We, uh, this is our, our first thing that we've done with Survivor's Path. So we're really uh, grateful to be able to you know, tell people what Survivor's Path does. And, um, and Amber, do you want to say what organization you work for as well? Uh, yes, I work with the Rebels Project, which is a
2: peer-to-peer support network for survivors. And we basically provide services such as like book clubs and virtual support meetings and in-person support meetings. We are not therapists. We're just peer support.
0: Peer support is sometimes the most important thing of all, because it's nothing like mm-hmm. being listened to and talking to someone who gets it. who has been there. Absolutely. Like, You're not crazy. That's a thing.
2: We have another friend who always says a hug from a survivor feels very different than a hug from anyone else.
0: Yeah, yeah. that's mm-hmm. very true. and very wise. Yeah, there's something about, you know, obviously this was not my trauma, but there's something about connecting with people who completely get it you know, with their own flavor that is so supportive and helpful. So where can people find you all like in terms of like, if they want to donate or, you know, things like that? So with Survivor's Path, you can go on to www.survivorspath.com.
1: And you can um, request us to come and speak about trauma. We're very candid. Uh, Our our slogans kind of, uh, we speak the truth about trauma. So you're, you're going to get a candid view of, you know, our stories and, and what we what we talk about, you know, and each of us have our own niche. And it's interesting. So um, and we'd love to go speak and just talk about trauma and, and help others. And we're also um, trying to connect with other survivors on the ground level uh, after a, a mass trauma event. And then, Amber, how can they reach the Rebels Project? Uh, yeah, you can go to
2: www those are hard letters dot So a lot of people do dot com, we are dot org, and we have a donate page, and you can learn more about the services that we provide.
0: Thank you all so much. I'm just so honored that you all were here with me. I feel like this is such an important contribution to post traumatic parenting and to you know what we're trying to do here. I really feel like for every post-traumatic parent that hears how trauma impacts our parenting and how in some ways, yeah, it feels abnormal, but it's so normal from the like, this is what's going to happen to when you parent with a traumatized brain. It just normalizes it for everybody. It makes everybody feel like, oh, this is not just me. You know, there are other people who are going through this also. And this is a struggle. Just even knowing that it's normal, that it's a struggle, I think is so helpful for everybody. So I truly appreciate you all being on here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm here on social media to be descriptive, not prescriptive. I'm here to educate, inform, and hopefully entertain, but never to treat. If listening to this podcast helps you realize that you need therapy, I am all for that. But podcasts aren't therapy. Please reach out to a mental health professional licensed in your jurisdiction. You'll be glad you did wish post-traumatic parenting was a talk show not a podcast you have a question for me or for my guests great news you can ask those questions by following me on instagram my handle is at dr psychology it's also in the show notes i love it when people reach out dm or post a question who knows your question might spark an entire episode come join our community we get it we're post-traumatic parents too can't wait to hear from you